was uh, four, four years old when the Marine left Haiti, the U.S. Marine left Haiti. I was a kid. And every time a Marine battalion passed in front of the house, my father took my hand and said, don't look at them. Don't look at them. And every May 18, which is the, the flag day, defiantly, put the Haitian flag in front of the house. And I said, Father, what is that? What does that mean for you? He said, that means that you are Haitian. That means that my great-grandfather fought at Berthier. Never forget that. You are Haitian. You are from this land. You are not French. You are not British. You are not American. You are Haitian. During this centennial of the U.S. invasion of Haiti, we speak to author Gerald Horn about his new book, all about the U.S., the Haitian Revolution, and the origins of the Dominican Republic. All that and more coming up next. And welcome to Thursday's Community Watch and Comment, the on-the-ground edition for October 22, 2015 on 89.3 WPFW, Pacifica's listener-powered station for jazz and justice in the nation's capital. On the ground and onthegroundshow.org are devoted to coverage of social justice activism on the streets and in the suites of power. Well, today, a history of social justice. We're going to be speaking with prolific author and activist Gerald Horn in studio today about the world and historic impact of the Haitian Revolution, which was the product of the first successful slave revolt. Not only did the leading powers then, France, Great Britain, and Spain, suffer a huge beatdown, the revolt by enslaved Africans had a profound impact on Haiti's mainland neighbor, the United States, inspiring the enslaved Africans here and striking terror throughout the southern slaveocracy. It also propelled this fledgling nation at that time one step closer to civil war. Gerald Horn has a new book all about these little explored details of this era, and that will be coming up. And of course, speaking of activism and telling our own story, WPFW is in the midst of its fall membership drive, and this is the hour for On the Ground to raise $500 for this week's goal to keep this listener-powered community station on the air. Call 202-588-9739 or pledge online at wpfw.org to show your support for On the Ground's coverage of activism here in the belly of the beast of national and international corporate and military power. So I just need five people becoming a new sustainer or renewing a membership at only $10 a month by calling 202-588-9739 or pledge online at wpfw.org. No amount is too small or too large. It'll be a great treat to discuss this new book with Gerald Horn, Confronting Black Jacobins, the U.S., the Haitian Revolution, and the Origins of the Dominican Republic. But as always, we're going to start with our headlines. And Chateau James, our intern, is here in the studio with me today to help out with the headlines. The Center for American Progress and the Campaign for Justice, Safety, and Jobs held a town hall-style meeting on Monday where they revealed a set of six guidelines for police in Baltimore. The six recommendations are to fire police officers who have demonstrated corruption or unnecessary violence, to remove the gag order on victims of police misconduct, 
to distribute body cameras to all police officers within one year and ensure that the public has access to footage to improve community policing by prioritizing, measuring, and incentivizing problem-solving and community satisfaction, to publish all Baltimore Police Department policies online, and to ensure that every police officer is trained in, in de-escalation techniques. Ben Jealous, former NAACP head and senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, said, For too long, police in Baltimore have been able to act with impunity. Policing was also the subject yesterday here in D.C. when concerned citizens sat before Councilmember Kenyon McDuffie to air concerns about proposed legislation to require that on-duty D.C. police officers wear body cameras. Those in attendance expressed both support and rejection of the proposal. Witnesses included Delroy Burton, chair of the D.C. Police Union, Kevin Goldberg, president of the D.C. Open Government Coalition. Those in opposition said that the bill would in fact restrict the ability of citizens to know what their police force is doing, while those in favor claimed that the bill would curb police misconduct. If the bill passes, the video from the body cams will be available from the police department for up to 90 days. This bill allows the council to modify the proposed regulations introduced on September 21, 2015. Okay, thank you, Chantel. Now, you went to both of those events. You covered both of them. So what's going to happen now, and what will McDuffie do now? What, what has to happen now? Does the council have to consider this to approve it or what? I think the council has to consider what people brought before them during the session, and then they'll take a vote on it. Okay, well, thank you. Well, in other Black Lives Matter news from across the country, there are investigations into the burning of six African-American churches in the St. Louis area. Also, the family and friends of a musician, Corey Jones, in Florida, are seeking answers after he was shot and killed by a plainclothes police officer as he waited for a tow truck on I-95. Last night, a panel of experts, including Nomi Prinzgar, Alparovitz and Jessica Gordon-Nemhart addressed a packed auditorium at the Goethe Institute here in Northwest D.C. about establishing a public bank in D.C. Nemhart, author of a book on African-American cooperatives, said that community credit unions could benefit from such a bank. Especially in the U.S., we have what we call community development credit unions, and they actually have a mission to address the issues to serve low-income communities with financial services. But guess what's happening to the community development credit unions? Two things are happening. One is the regulators, the National Credit Union Administration, is actually forcing them to merge with larger credit unions because the model is that you're not sustainable if you're not large. But the purpose of a credit union is to be owned by its members, right? For the depositors to own it, decide what to do with it, and use it to keep money circulating in their communities, right? So you have this opposite thing happening, right? We have the mission of a community development credit union being totally thwarted by the regulators who are making them be big. But if they had act better access to capital, to loans, to funds, and things like that, like through a public bank, right, then they could be shorn up because the biggest problem with the community development credit unions is they don't have enough deposits, right? They don't have large enough deposits keep things flowing. So again, you can see these connections we're trying to make here. You can get more information about that local movement for a DC public bank at dcpublicbanking.org. Also on local economics, Power DC is continuing 
to urge the Public Service Commission to reject the backdoor deal that Mayor Muriel Bowser has reached for the takeover of Pepco by the Chicago-based nuclear giant Exelon. Power DC says on its website that the PSC should reject the new deal as the misleading marketing campaign that it is. They say that if this case does move forward, it is extremely important that the settlement receive a full review from the PSC and that the public has an opportunity to comment. Anything less would be a failure of due process, they say. And with that statement, they have also a petition you can sign to tell the Public Service Commission that they were right. No deal with Exelon is a good deal for D.C. The website is PowerDC.org. And several organizations will march from the Department of Justice to the White House this afternoon to demand that the administration stop detaining immigrant mothers and children. This is part of a national week of action to end family detention. To join them, you can go to the Department of Justice at 4.30. And it's, it's to highlight the eve of uh, October 23rd tomorrow, the day the U.S. government is expected to comply with federal district Court Judge Dolly G's ruling in Flores versus Johnson that the Obama administration's policy of jailing mothers and children violates the Flores Settlement Agreement that has set the standard for the detention and treatment of immigrant children since 1997. It is expected, however, that the administration will appeal rather than comply. And they say it's time to tell the Obama administration to end family detentions now. The again to join with them. That's today at 4:30 p.m. Starting at the Department of Justice at 950 Pennsylvania Avenue. And finally, in our culture and media moment, Katrina at 10 is a national symposium at Georgetown University today and tomorrow. Katrina at 10 will examine the impacts of Katrina and the flooding of New Orleans on memory, culture, history, media, policy, and social justice. Katrina at 10 will provide opportunities for the interrogation of collective memories of Katrina and the flooding of New Orleans through film screenings, musical performances, and panel discussions. On tonight, uh, the program will be opening with a screening of Tia Lesson and Carl Deal's award-winning film, Trouble the Water, uh, from 2008. Um, after the screening, Lesson will discuss the film's production, and there will also be a reception. Here is a sound from the trailer of Trouble the Water. My name is Scott Michael Roberts. This is my wife, Kimberly Roberts. We're from New Orleans, the Ninth War, underwater. And they say it on the news that it's like aiming toward Mississippi so we might get the Oscars. That's the sky. It looks pretty nice. It sure soon will change. Girl, I hear some thunder. Golly! Look at that water, boy! Oh, Lord! No, you see how hot it is? Oh, with us, Lord, please. All oh, this water, come and do the wonders. Hey, help us get off the roof, man. You're a real hero, boy. We under siege, truly under siege. Everybody done lost everything around here. Now, you have seen what Katrina has done to us. She has stuck us in her attic. I'm running out of juice, too. These houses have not been expected yet. It could be dead people right now as we speak. Because the National Guard, they have not been here. And it's two weeks after the hurricane. And this is one of the Navy bases that Bush had planned to close down. Why can't we steal the night? What about the women and children? They say, get off our property or we're going to start shooting. We don't need you out here if you try to trouble the water. 
I don't want to raise your expectations too high. My son wanted to join the army. You're not going to fight for a country that does not give a damn for you. Don't come to our town if you try to trouble the water. The hood always be last to be fixed. I'm living life after Katrina. It's hard out here. You going to make it, won't Okay, we all going to make it. Down south, hustling, they going to I urge the citizens to continue to listen to the local authorities. It's our home, our food, our neighbors, our problem. That's where I want to be at. Katrina is still going on. Night walk. More information is at katrina-10.com. All events tonight and tomorrow are at Georgetown University. And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back, Gerald Horn and Confronting Black Jacobins, the U.S., the Haitian Revolution, and the Origins of the Dominican Republic. Now, I know you're glued to the radio with all this information and you're just enjoying it, but I want to remind you again that we're in our fun drive, and I want to encourage you, especially if you're a new member, if you've never pledged WPFW or you know you need to renew because that, sustainer has run out they're not taking the money out anymore or you know you just want to show support for on the ground go to 202-588-9739 202-588-9739 is the number to dial i should say or pledge online at wpfw.org just ten dollars a month less than the price of one movie ticket right so 202-588-9739 or wpfw.org uh, stay with us we'll be right back That was from I'm Haiti featuring Kalvon Kajessa talking Mecca on Thursday's Community Watching Comment. At the top of the show, actually, the man speaking in our opening clip was from a track titled Homage à Jean-Dominique by Wyclef Jean. Now, the Haitian Revolution, which was the product of, like we said, the first successful slave revolt, it was the product of the first successful slave revolt. And not only did the leading powers at that time, France, Great Britain, and Spain, suffer a huge loss, terrible defeat, the revolt had a profound impact on Haiti's mainland neighbor, the United States. And it inspired the enslaved Africans here and struck terror throughout the southern slaveocracy. It propelled this fledgling nation at that time one, one step closer to civil war. Now, Gerald Horn has a new book all about these little explored details of this era, and it's really a treat to discuss his new book with him. Uh, the book is Confronting Black Jacobins, the U.S., the Haitian Revolution, and the Origins of the Dominican Republic. Gerald Horn is the John Jay and Rebecca Morris Professor of African American History at the University of Houston. He's the author of more than two dozen books, including Race to Revolution, The Counter-Revolution of 1776, and Negro Comrades of the Crown, which we've also discussed on this show. Good morning, Gerald. Good morning to you, and thank you for inviting me. Yes. I should always mention that you're a frequent contributor to this show and across the Pacifica Network, and I really, we really appreciate that. So I have to admit I had to kind of stop at the word Jacobin because it's not something that we use a lot. And so as I understand it, it's a word that was originally used to describe a group of revolutionaries that emerged after the French Revolution in France. 
But in this book, you use the term to describe those who fought for Haiti's independence. I guess just as CLR James did in mm-hmm. his 1938 account of the Haitian Revolution. So tell me about that choice of word to discuss Haitian freedom fighters. Well, in part, it was a homage and a takeoff on CLR James' book. CLR James, of course, the great Trinidadian intellectual, prolific author and political activist uh, whose book, The Black Jacobins, written, as you suggested, uh, almost 70 years ago, is still the gold standard, if you like, for trying to understand the Haitian Revolution. But I was trying to go in a different direction with this book, because to you, to reason by analogy, if you look at the coming to majority rule in South Africa, any school child in South Africa knows that certainly the struggle on the ground in that country was pivotal, but they also know that international events <laughs> helped to shape the coming to majority rule. We all know in this country that the dispatching of Cuban troops uh, to southern Angola, northern Namibia, more than 25 years ago to inflict a punishing defeat on the apartheid army with a real threat to march to Pretoria and forcibly oust them from power had a catalytic impact, shall we say, on the ability of the apartheid rulers to negotiate reasonably. We all know that most of those who were trained in Nelson Mandela's Mkonto Wesizwe, the Spear of the Nation, the armed wing of the African National Congress, which now rules, they were mostly trained in East Germany and the Soviet Union and Cuba. Uh, when Oliver Tambo, the head of the ANC, had a debilitating illness, uh, he was treated in Stockholm, Sweden. We all know about the anti-apartheid struggle that gripped the United States of America. So this was an international movement that obviously had a very strong domestic component in South Africa. Likewise, with regard to the abolition of slavery in the United States, we mislead ourselves, and we don't ingest the proper lessons of history. If we think that slavery was abolished solely because of internal factors here in North America, There was an international movement to abolish slavery. In the first place, there was the Haitian Revolution, uh, which basically led to a general crisis of the entire slave system that could only be resolved with its collapse, the entire system, not just in Haiti itself. Mm -hmm. That is to say that Britain, the leading power of that era, after expending copious amounts of blood and treasure and trying to overthrow the Haitian revolutionaries in the late 18th century, recognized that the better part of wisdom was to negotiate with them because, like any revolutionaries, the Haitians wanted to spread their gospel, not least to neighboring Jamaica and Barbados, and there was a fear that Britain would lose everything, including their lives. Hmm. So they moved quickly to abolish the slave trade. Before the United States, they moved to abolish slavery in the 1830s, And then, of course, they began to put pressure on the United States, along with Haiti putting pressure on the United States. If you look at the major slave revolts, as I detail in this book, Gabriel Prosser in neighboring Virginia, circa 1800, uh, Denmark Vesey, uh, circa 1821 in South Carolina, just in the news because of the Charleston Massacre, June 2015, and Mother uh, A.M.E. Emanuel Church, which, of course, was implicated uh, in that uh, revolt. Nat Turner slave revolt in neighboring Virginia, circa 1831. They all have Haitian fingerprints all over them. And so you can't begin to understand what happened in terms of slavery in the United States without understanding this international component, particularly the Haitian component, which suggests, of course, that we owe a debt of gratitude to Hispaniola and to Haiti that, quite frankly, can never be repaid. And obviously, this suggests we should be stepping up our solidarity Mm -hmm. uh, with the Haitians as we speak. 
Right. Well, we'll definitely get to that later because Haiti stays in the news. I saw articles recently about how a minuscule amount of the aid pledged to Haiti has mm. actually gone to help them, that the vast majority of people are still living in squalor in these camps. And, of course, there was the cholera uh, epidemic brought about by, you know, U.N. soldiers. But we'll we'll definitely get to that. But in terms of this history, why Haiti? I'm wondering, you know, what conditions existed in Haiti for it to be the location of the first successful slave revolt and um, the first, I guess, post-colonial independent black nation in this hemisphere? A very good question. And as I try to explain in the book, you understand the Haitian Revolution in part by understanding the revolt against British rule in the North American mainland that led to the creation of the United States in the late 18th century. As I said in my book that you so graciously mentioned, the counter-revolution of 1776, this was a counter-revolution, and it was a counter-revolution sparked by this fear that Britain was moving towards abolition of slavery. And rather than see their fortunes go down the drain, the slave owners, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, Patrick Henry, et al., rose up as one and kicked out the British. But in order to defeat this major empire, they needed allies, interestingly enough. And the ally, of course, was France. And so what happens is that the, the rebels in North America borrow heavily from Paris, which helps to ignite a crisis in France itself, which helps to spark the French Revolution, uh, circa 1789. And, of course, the rise of revolutionaries in France has a symbiotic relationship with the rise of revolutionaries on, on the island of Hispaniola. I should also say that... The triumph of the rebels on the North American mainland, the people whose pictures are in your currency, like George Washington, for example, meant a great leap forward for both slavery and slave trading. And so what happens is that the U.S. slave traders, after the founding of the United States, begin to go into Africa and kidnap, manacle, and handcuff more Africans with the manic energy of crazed bees, dragging them, kicking and screaming across the Atlantic, depositing them on the island of Hispaniola. But this creates a demographic imbalance because they're bringing so many Africans across the Atlantic in conjunction and league with their French comrades. And so what happens is that the demographic imbalance means that the Africans are outnumbering the Europeans, sometimes at a ratio of 30 to 1, at a time when exploitation is being stepped up in what is oftentimes viewed as the most valuable piece of real estate on planet Earth at that particular time because of the wild exploitation that was taking place. Mm -hmm. And so this was a combustible recipe for disaster for the slave owners. And, of course, it led to the inevitable, which is a slave revolt that lasted from approximately 1791. to Independence was declared on January 1st, uh, 1804. And, of course, what happens is that the United States plays a very tricky game. Uh, for a while, and this is what these sort of dewy-eyed, naive, even oftentimes even left-wing historians have focused on, uh, is what appears to be a, a sort of concord between the United States and the Haitian revolutionaries. But the concord that lasts for a brief moment is driven by specific factors. Factor number one is deteriorating relations with France after France had helped the United States to independence, which leads the U.S. to want to drive France out of the hemisphere, which, of course, leads directly to the so-called Louisiana Purchase, which magnifies the territorial expanse of the United States of America. It's not just Louisiana. It's stretching all the way up to the Canadian border. Mm -hmm. 
and this comes directly out of the Haitian Revolution. And then, of course, uh, there's a certain kind of concord because, as I say in the book, Toussaint Louverture, the great hero of the Haitian Revolution, uh, actually commanded more troops, actually commanded more troops than George Washington did at his zenith, at his height. And there was a real fear that the Haitians, in league with some of their allies, would then mount an invasion of Dixie and then help to lead slave revolts throughout Dixie. And so this leads to a temporary moment of concord between the Haitian revolutionaries and the United States. But that moment passes very quickly. And as you well know, the United States does not recognize the Haitian Revolution until the midst of the U.S. Civil War, circa 1862, when the government in Washington seemingly is about to be overthrown by the slave-owning so-called Confederate States of America. So then they recognize Haiti because Haiti is one of the few true allies that they have at that moment. Britain is playing a double game with regard to the U.S. Civil War. On the one hand, the abolitionist movement is putting pressure on the so-called Confederate States of America. But quite frankly, London wanted to see the nation split in two. And Haiti was really the only true ally that the United States had at that time. And it's very curious. Uh, if you look at uh, Haiti coming to independence in 1804, the United States recognizes the government in 1862, and that's 58 years. And the Cuban Revolution is 1959. The United States recognizes the government, let's say, in 2015. That's 41 plus That's 56 years. So I'm not sure if that's progress or, or lack thereof, but it's an interesting comparison to make. Wow. Well, you know, what kind of – you mentioned that huge ratio of the enslaved population to the slave owners and that contributing to this really combustible situation there. So I know something similar – was occurring here in the United States in terms of uh, South Carolina. And I was really curious reading the book, just understanding how the slave owners in South Carolina was ha were having this, these same fears and wanted to basically end importation of more Africans because of that. But anyway, we're going to take a little break right now. I think I have uh, Katia Stitt coming uh, in to join us, uh, the wonderful Katia Stitt, who has a little cough. <laughs> but um, but uh, they're here to help us during the, it's, I don't want to say the final Thursday, but I it could be it's, the final it's, Thursday. It's um, mostly the final Thursday. We'll talk after the show. But right. yes, um, we are down to the wire. Hello, Dr. Horn. Nice to see Hello. you again. Um, and uh, we appreciate you being such a friend to the station, always. You Pleasure's know? all mine, I assure you. <laughs> and he's being more of a friend today. Right. Because he, he just surprised us that he's his book drops Monday. And, and is this, um, the, the caller wanted to know, is this a book about Haiti? Is this what we're... Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Okay, that's what we thought. Yeah, Can yeah. you give us the title? I guess I should say, what is the title of the book? About but, but he he just made this offer uh, to donate two books to our fundraiser. Mm -hmm. So I would like to to tell uh, listeners that if they want to become a, a new sustainer for at least twenty dollars a month, that we want to give the them first the, two people that do the that. first two people that do that because we only have two. Right. To, that we will give them this book to them, and he will he always signs the book. Well, you know that's wonderful. We actually have someone on the phone. That's why I came mm -hmm. in to find out the title because right. they were asking the title of the book. The so. title is Confronting Black Jacobins: The United States, the Haitian Revolution, and the Origins of the Dominican Republic, which right. I'm sure we'll talk about shortly. Very good. Right, right. Very good. Thank really you so fascinating much. Fascinating book. It's well, I say get on that phone. One is taken, I think. So one more to go, 
800-222-9739 or 1-800-222-9739. I'm sorry, Esther, I didn't mean to cut no, you No, no, no. We were, we were just at the point to take a break. You have excellent, okay. impeccable timing. <laughs> impeccable timing. So uh, we're going to take a little break right now. And again, I will reiterate that phone number and website, 202-588-9739 or... 1-800-222-9739 and if you can pledge online you can go to wpfw.org to get uh, a copy of the book we're talking about with uh, Professor Gerald Horn uh, and he has graciously donated two books that we are going to offer to the first two people pledging at least $20 a month to become sustainers at the station. Uh, it comes hot off the press on Monday, and you will get a signed copy from Gerald Horn. 202-588-9739. Uh, we are going to continue our discussion with him after this break, uh, so stay with us. My name is Haiti, and I'm here to say I had to fight some things. I've been hurting after the I, I love my people I've been fighting storms and wars and hard The things people try to take away I, they call me hate My people got pride Look into their eyes All it needs is just a little sunshine Now what you gonna do? Oh, my name is Haiti. I'll fight you for the land. I showed you my blood. I showed you much love. Now I'm calling you. I'm away, oh. I'm away, And welcome back to Thursday's Community Watch and Comment, the On the Ground edition. I'm Esther Averam, and I'm in studio with Professor Gerald Horn. And we're talking about his new book, Confronting Black Jacobins, the U.S., the Haitian Revolution, and the Origins of the Dominican Republic. And before the break, we were just going to talk about, I was just asking you about comparing what the conditions in Haiti to, for example, in South Carolina, where there was a, a tremendous ratio in terms of the enslaved population to the slaveholders. Yes. Um, South Carolina, for a good deal of its history, has had a black majority. Uh, that is to say, upwards of 60% of the colony then state's population being of African descent, and in some precincts, the percentage being in higher than that. 
But this hardly holds a candle to the Caribbean. That is to say, 20 to 1 ratios, 10 to 1 ratios, 30 to 1 ratios in certain precincts. And I think that on the one hand, that helps to explain the raucousness in the Caribbean. It also helps to explain why so many planters from the Caribbean make what I call the great trek to the mainland, including Alexander Hamilton, the first U.S. treasurer, whose picture is on some of your value currency, who, of course, was born in the Caribbean, in, in Nevis, um, now part of St. Kitts Nevis, before coming to the U.S. mainland. Of course, many of the U.S. leaders were actually born in the Caribbean, but fled in panic as the Africans began to rise up. But despite the fact that we uh, did not have these favorable ratios that so often uh, preoccupied the Caribbean, uh, as Denmark Vesey's revolt tends to suggest, uh, that did not stop us from revolting. And, of course, Denmark Vesey, who had a great deal of experience in the Caribbean uh, as a seafarer, supposedly his plot involved uh, not only rising up and leading a slave revolt in South Carolina, uh, but then expropriating uh, property, including currency, from the slave owners and doing a fast break to Haiti itself. Uh, unfortunately, as you know, his plot was betrayed, and he and many of the other plotters and conspirators uh, were executed. But if you look at the history of South Carolina from the late 17th century up until the abolition of slavery in the 1860s, you'll find one uh, either revolt or conspiracy to revolt after another. Wow. Okay, and you've already kind of talked a little bit about the impact on geo, like kind of global mm -hmm. politics and among these then superpowers who were kind of jockeying to see how they could exploit what was here and who they could enslave here. How do those relationships and that jockeying change after the revolution is concluded? Mm -hmm. Well, let me first of all preface my remarks by saying that I respect the sovereignty of the Dominican Republic, and I, I, I say that because I'm going to make some statements that could easily be interpreted uh, as being contrary to what I just said. What I mean is, is that if you look at your map, you'll see that today, in 2015, there are two nations on this relatively small island of Hispaniola. And I'm sure it may have occurred to many of our listeners, of why is it that you have two nations on this island? You have one nation occupying the island of Cuba, for example. And this ties into the revolutionary upsurge, uh, the Haitian Revolution, 1791 to 1804, uh, because to begin with, the revolutionaries triumphed in the western part of the island. There was still a Spanish foothold in what is now the Dominican Republic on the eastern side of the island. And what happens is that Spain is under repetitive attack from France uh, because of the uh, jingoism of Napoleon and, and Paris until finally about two decades after, or actually less than two decades after the triumphant Haitian Revolution in 1804, the, the Haitians just march in <laughs> to what is now the Dominican Republic and take over, abolish slavery, of course, is one of their first acts. And then what's interesting is that they begin to reach out to free U.S. Negroes. And it's estimated that about 13,000 free U.S. Negroes then migrate 
to the island of Hispaniola. Their descendants still residing there, at least many of them. And they occupy oh, what is now the Dominican Republic. But what happens is that the United States, as already noted, was not pleased with having this abolitionist island on its doorstep, particularly after the United States out Spain from Florida about the same time that the Haitians are marching into the Dominican Republic. This brings both the United States and Haiti closer to each other. That is to say, abolitionists uh, staring across the Caribbean Sea at slave owners. And so, as I detail in the book, in one of the more successful and initial uh, U.S. covert actions, the United States helps to engineer the breakaway, the secession of the Dominican Republic from Haiti, which is really debilitating to Haiti. It leads to repetitive conflict, conflict which arguably is still manifesting today as we speak. It even led to one of the most remarkable episodes in world history when on the brink of the U.S. Civil War, about 1860, the Dominican government invites Spain to come back as a colonial power. <laughs> I mean, you know, usually people resist colonialism. Uh, they asked Spain to come back to because co- they wanted to confront the Haitians more effectively and more frontally. And, of course, this leads to another war where the Haitians support the Dominicans, who were anti-Madrid, in ousting the Spanish. But this helps to create this cycle of, of perpetual conflict between these two nations, which, of course, was was part of the deal when the United States helped to engineer the secession in the first place. I think that if you want to have an an accurate history, uh, not only of Haiti, but also of this country, you would have to recognize that there were a number of slave secessions that took place, slavery secessions. We all know about the so-called Confederate States of America, circa 1861. But, of course, you have to start with the slavery secession 1776 that leads to the creation of the United States of America, which helps to explain uh, these uh, right-wing trends that still obtain in the United States of America. It helps to explain the paradox that even people on the left do not examine, which is that those who purport to be the staunchest U.S. patriots, that is to say those in Dixie, are simultaneously the staunchest supporters of those who tried to overthrow the United States of America, that is to say the folks in Georgia who like to fly the Confederate flag, which is not only a a symbol of slavery, it's a symbol of traitorous activity towards the United States. And I think you you reconcile that apparent paradox by recognizing that those who tried to overthrow slavery, excuse me, overthrow the United States government in 1861, thought that they were walking in the footsteps of those who bolted from Britain in 1776 because both were grounded on trying to perpetuate slavery. Hmm. And it's very curious, you know, we just had the Canadian elections in the United States, I mean, excuse me, in Canada, excuse me. And even people on the left don't do the simple comparison. I mean, here you have this control group across the border. You did not have a revolt against British rule. South of the border, you did. And yet, people don't connect the dots. North of the border, you have the single-payer health care system that supposedly we should be aspiring towards, which I agree with. You have much more respect for Native American nations, which are called the First Nations in Canada. Uh, First Nations issues hardly get a hearing on this side of the border. And that's where that's where enslaved people went when they really wanted to be free. Of course. Well, right. you, you fled north, the north star to Canada. And so this book that we're talking about, Confronting Black Jacobins, 
is not only an account of this revolutionary period from 1791 to 1804 and then through the failed attempt of the United States to annex both Haiti and the Dominican Republic uh, circa 1870, but in many ways it's a challenge and a rebuke to the progressive movement of the United States, which I don't think it's done its homework, quite frankly, in so many different realms, including mm -hmm. this one. Okay. You know, I, I wanted to follow up with some other things that I really found fascinating about the book. But before I do, I want to thank Anonymous in Bethesda and Mike. I want to, he's uh, a new member, so I want you to give them the bell. <laughs> So uh, I want to thank Anonymous from Bethesda. Thank you so much. And you can join Anonymous by calling 202-588-9739 or 1-800-222-9739 or pledge online. If you're listening online or, uh, yeah, if you're listening online, go to the website, pledge right there on the website at wpfwfm.org. So you can join Anonymous Join Bethesda. I want to hear from D.C. I want to hear from Virginia. I think this is my final week for the the fundraiser, and I've met my goal the other two weeks, and I want to meet my goal today as well, 202-588-9739, because I know the listeners to this station understand how important it is to have a station here in the earshot of the White House, of Capitol, the Capitol, of the Department of Justice, the Supreme Court in the earshot of those in walking the halls of power here and also so we can hear each other and we can hear our own voices so 202-588-9739 or 1-800-222-9739 or wpfwfm.org again thanks to anonymous from bethesda this is esther verum and i'm here with gerald horn and we're talking about his new book so i was really surprised to read that there was this plot to annex what is now the Dominican Republic and maybe right. even Haiti. And then, two, there were plans, again, I'm talking about in this country, to deport <laughs> the formerly enslaved Africans there, you know, so that... <laughs> can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, it, it, it's, it's almost a historical accident that we're sitting on the North American mainland conversing in English as opposed to sitting in Hispaniola perhaps conversing in Spanish or Creole or French. That is to say that somebody needs to rebook, r write a book on the repetitive efforts to get rid of the U.S. Negroes. I mean, <laughs> uh, some might argue that continues up to 2015, but certainly in the 19th century, uh, that was high on the agenda, including the uh, so-called sainted Abraham Lincoln. Uh, I talked in a previous book of how he was negotiating with the Brazilians, with the Ecuadorians, with folks in Central America, of course, uh, with folks in Hispaniola to send us all there. And then this was followed up on by U.S. President uh, U.S. Grant, who, of course, is also on your currency. And it came within a whisker of failing, I mean, of, of succeeding, I should say. It almost succeeded, but it actually failed, as we all know in retrospect. Interestingly enough, Washington, D.C.'s own Frederick Douglass uh, was a supporter of the annexation of the island of Hispaniola, actually of the Dominican Republic, uh, which I don't think is one of the highlights of his otherwise illustrious career, because, of course, it was Frederick Douglass whose words I quote at length, talking about the Haitian Revolution as being one of the great episodes in world history and how you can't begin to talk about abolition of slavery 
in the United States without talking about abolition of slavery on the island of Hispaniola, which of course is the, the theme of this particular book. But I should also mention in this context that there were repetitive attempts, even before that annexations, to re-enslave Haiti, particularly by U.S. nationals. What I mean is, is that if you look in the neighborhood, uh, you notice, of course, that Britain had moved towards abolition of slavery in the 1830s, Jamaica, Barbados, uh, St. Kitts, etc. But you had slavery in, in Cuba up until the 1880s. And so what happens is that the slave-hungry folks in Dixie, who thought that they did not necessarily have to go all the way to Africa to manacle and handcuff Africans, thought that they could take a shortcut by just going to Haiti and kidnapping the black folks there and bringing them to Alabama and bringing them to Mississippi. There were repetitive plots in that direction. And so Haiti had to spend a lot of its government budget on the military. It reminds me, in some senses, of, of the Cuban Revolution, because part of the attempt to suffocate the Cuban Revolution was to distort the budget by having these repetitive plots to kill the leadership, to invade the island, which forces the island to spend money not necessarily on health and education, but spending on the military. And the same thing happened with the Haitian Revolution, except their uh, fate would have been even more dire. It would not only have been occupied, it would have been working as a slave on a cotton plantation in East Texas. Wow. So... One of the points I'm trying to bring forward is that as we in North America push forward our resolute agenda for reparations, I think we only strengthen that agenda by enlisting the Haitians. The Haitians should be asking for reparations from the U.S. government, not only the, the French government. Of course, we all know in the 1820s the Haitian, the Haitian government was further weakened because they had to pay reparations to, the, uh, to their former enslavers. Aren't they still paying it? Uh, to a degree, yes. But what's even more interesting is that the former enslavers, many of them moved to New Orleans, and before the U.S. Civil War, New Orleans had more uh, millionaires per capita than any other city in the United States of America, in part because they were getting so much money from Haiti. And so I think we only strengthen our movement and stiffen our solidarity uh, by enlisting our brothers and sisters in, in Haiti in our righteous march towards reparations for this free labor our ancestors were compelled to donate to this United States of America. Well, there are a lot of people who are really into what you're talking about because we have some people to thank. I want to thank Lee from Prince Frederick, Maryland, Thank you so much, Lee, stepping up. And Marilyn, Prince Frederick is in the house. Wow. And he's going to be a sustainer. So thank you so much, Lee, for understanding that we need sustaining. You know, this this is listener-powered, community-powered uh, radio right here in the belly of the beast, what we call the belly of the beast right here in D.C. And we need a voice for the community. And thank you for becoming a sustainer renewing your sustainer and also we have a renewal from anonymous uh, in Silver Spring and they're going to be picking up Gerald Horn's book confronting black Jacobins the US the Haitian Revolution and the origins of the Dominican Republic so thank you so much anonymous so that's also Maryland Silver Spring Silver Springs in the house thank you so much and I have another renewal from Washington, D.C., Anonymous, 
And he was also going to be picking up that second copy that you done Oh, good. Yes, awesome. So uh, thank you so much, Anonymous, from D.C. So I have D.C.'s in the house, Maryland's in the house, several times over, and we still want to hear from Virginia. So uh, Alexandria, Arlington, you know. So, uh, you know, I don't have much time left, and I'm sorry I couldn't take callers. I promise next week I'm going to open up the phone lines. It's been a little while, but... It's so hard to do the pledge, to do the show, to do interviews and take callers. <laughs> it's like, but hopefully next week we'll open up the phone lines again. So, so wow. So this um, plot to like deport us. Wow. I just, you know, that, you know, I had to like read it over again. I couldn't. Um, so, all right. So the other thing I want to ask you about the fact that uh, it might be surprising to so many Africans in this country that so many Africans in this country were inspired by the Haitian Revolution mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. they actually went there to fight in mm-hmm. the revolution and and stayed there. I mm-hmm. think you mentioned that earlier like 13,000 mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. And so when I got to that portion of the book it just talked about uh, this one woman. I I don't know. I think she was a European woman who went there and was admiring uh their homesteads and how the homesteads of these the Africans who had emigrated from the United States were these, you know, beautiful, beautifully kept, you know, little houses with gardens. And she was just, you know, remarking on them and and just their community that they set up. Where, what part of Haiti were they concentrated? Well, it's interesting that the U.S. free Negroes who migrated to the island migrated, as noted, after the Haitians marched into the eastern side of the island, ousted the Spanish, which is about two decades plus after the triumph of the revolution in 1804. So what's curious is that after the onset of the Dominican Republic, circa 1844, these U.S. Negroes find that they're living in another country, <laughs> you know, which is very curious. You, you oftentimes find, uh, if you look at the North American mainland, that you would have these U.S. Negroes that are trying to escape U.S. jurisdiction. So they migrate to the Pacific Northwest before the United States takes over. They think that they're escaping U.S. jurisdiction. But then the United States comes and takes over. <laughs> and then, of course, they're bequeathed to history as the first U.S. settlers in the Pacific Northwest. Or you have people who migrated to what they thought was Mexico, uh, meaning San Francisco, in uh, circa 1844, trying to escape U.S. jurisdiction, actually work for the Mexican government. The United States comes and takes over, and then, of course, they're bequeathed to history as uh, some of the first U.S. settlers in San Francisco are black. But actually, they were trying to escape U.S. Uh, wow. jurisdiction. And so, likewise, for these folks who moved to the island, they thought they were moving to Haiti. They wound up moving to the Dominican Republic. After the Dominican Republic takes off, they're all seen as agents of Haiti at a time when Haiti and Dominican Republic are at sword's point or in conflict. And then, of course, they were on the northern side of the island, where, which is where these U.S. slave traders, who, as I said, were trying to find a shortcut to find more slaves by not going to Africa, by coming to the island. And so they, many of them were in jeopardy of being captured on the northern side of the island of Hispaniola and being dragged back to the United States to be to be slaves, believe it or not. And these were actually free Negroes. So, you know, I have to say that it's, it's another, in one way, illustrious chapter in our history, a history of struggle, a history of grit and determination, but it's also a chapter of pain and torture and beatdowns. 
sense to a certain degree. Wow. Well, you know, we could probably talk for another hour, but, you know, I don't have much time for the show. I always say this less than an hour uh, because we're going to have to make way for the news and, and the, the blue show. But um, uh, I, I want you to have a chance to this is your new book out. It drops Monday, Confronting Black Jacobins, the U.S., the Haitian Revolution and the Origins of the Dominican Republic. You have another book coming out in January on Paul Robeson mm-hmm. and you have some other projects. But I know we'll have a chance to catch sure. up with you before then to sure. talk about them again. So I've been speaking with prolific author and activist Gerald Horn, a frequent contributor to this show and across the Pacifica Network. And that will have to do it for us on Thursday's Community Watching Comment, the On the Ground edition. I want to thank everyone who called and helped me make my goal and exceed my goal this week. Thank you so much for everyone who pledged during this fall membership drive on this show and and for all the shows to keep jazz and justice alive in in Washington, D.C. I'm Esther Averam, and I want to give a special thanks to my guests again, Gerald Horn, and thanks to Chantel James, my intern, and DJ Waheed. And thank you for supporting your station for Jazz and Justice. You can keep calling in 202-588-9739 or go to WPFW.org, and there is a donation button on the upper left-hand corner of the homepage that says Donate Now. All donations until the top of the hour will help on the ground even make more money for the station, right? 202-588-9739. You can reach the show at onthegroundshow.org where you can now listen to all of our shows and past shows. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On The Ground Show. Now stay tuned for the news followed by Krista Property on the Thursday edition of Don't Forget the Blues. Raise your voice. Peace. What key I want to do to them? Everybody knows that they're guilty. Everybody knows that they lied. Everybody knows that they're guilty. Resting on their conscience, eating their inside is freedom. Said it's freedom time now. It's freedom. Said it's freedom time now. Time to get free. Or give yourselves up now. It's freedom. Said it's freedom time. Yeah, there's a war in the mind over territory for the dominion. Who will dominate the opinions, schisms, and isms, keeping us in forms of religion, conforming our vision to the world church's decision, trapped in a section. Submitted to committee election, moral infection, epidemic lies and deception, insurrection of the highest possible order, distort, and I take recorders from hearing like underwater, beyond the borders, find ascending disorder, bound by the strategy of systemic depravity, heavy as gravity, head first in the cavity, without a bottom, a fate worse than Sodom, what's got him, drunk off the spirits.